You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Culture's view of identity in light of him. Uh, Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. If you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that should be good. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath a seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you this morning. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. If you are able, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, one another Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. It is great to see all of your faces, especially after a spring break. I thought, I I really hope that you guys had a wonderful one. Um, My name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, uh, and I get the joy of being able to preach this morning. Uh, Like Scott said, we are going to be continuing our series through the book of Mark, which is a really fast-paced way at looking at the life of Jesus and who he introduced himself to the world as, which as we've learned, not only by title, but also by text, that he is the king of the universe. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. Uh, I, I told the nine o'clock, I, I don't know if it's just out of a habit or if it's true, but maybe a little bit of both, but we got a lot of work to do this morning. So I'm going to pray for us and we're just going to jump right in. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we come before you today. And God, if there are storms in the heart, storms in the soul, we ask that you would bring peace to them. God, it is your word, your word alone that can do that. And so God, as we approach you this morning and approach the things that you have said and the things that you're communicating to us as we speak, we ask that you would give us humility in the heart. You would open the eyes of our heart to hear what you might have to say, what you might have to tell us, where you might have to lead us. And so God, regardless of the depths of the waters that you may take us into, we just ask that you remind us that you have promised to be with us. So God, we need you. This is work that only you can do. And so God, let us look to you and nowhere else. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we can start in the book of Mark, we have to understand what this text would have meant to first century hearers. We have to understand what this moment might have meant to them. And the only way to do that is to rewind a little bit. And so we will be back in Mark, but before you do that, hold your finger there and go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter one. We're gonna go all the way back to the beginning because this will set up the framework for why when the disciples respond to Jesus, you'll get the feeling, you'll get the real gravitas that they would have had in their heart. That when we read that they had great fear that filled their heart, 
we will understand why. Because in, in our modern culture right now, this, this text is really, it's really cool to look at. And, and I don't think it goes without saying that it's a really miraculous moment that Jesus calms the seas. But it doesn't have the same gravity that it ought to have, that it would have had to the disciples at the time, knowing some of their background. So what we do know is that before, before in the ancient world, before even Israel was created, they had, all of these different nations, all of these different religions had a creation narrative, a creation story. And the dominant story was that before the gods created anything, they believed that chaos and disorder was represented in the world by these primordial waters. So it didn't matter what nation you came from, they had some kind of form of story that before anything was there, there were these chaotic waters that, that were without form, that were moving throughout the earth, and they represented disorder. In fact, the Mesopotamians, which if you don't know, Abraham, who we find in the Bible, is from Mesopotamia. They believed that these primordial waters were the animosity between the gods. And at the center of this chaotic water, this chaotic sea, was their water goddess, Tiamat. And they believed that in order to get the heavens and the earth, the separation of this formless void, there had to be a battle. There had to be a cataclysmic battle between two gods. And so what ends up happening is Tiamat, who's their water goddess in the middle of it, is chopped in half by the storm god Marduk, and then you get the separation of the heavens and the earth. And all the surrounding nations would have believed some form of story like this. In fact, the Canaanites believed that it wasn't Marduk, but it was Baal, and Baal who had to fight the watery chaos and the void. But what does he do? He also cuts the sea god Yom in half, and you get the separation of the waters. See, this Bible was written to an ancient group of people, and these were the stories, these surrounding stories, these formless void stories, these chaotic stories of a, of a water, of a sea that represented disorder in the world. These are the stories that they grew up on. Every civilization would have had some type of story like this. And so now knowing that they have this in their background, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so the ancient people would have heard this story and thought, oh yeah, yeah, I know what's gonna happen here for sure. Like this is just like all the other ones I heard. This is just like the one that I grew up with. Yahweh's gonna come in here and he's gonna fight the sea God and he's gonna cut it in half and there's gonna be the separation. But that's not what happens. Skip over to, to verse number six. Genesis 1, 6 through 10 says this, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So when we read this story, not only is there no fighting between gods, Yahweh doesn't even get off his throne. He merely speaks and, say, and tells the waters to go one place and tell, tells other waters to go another place. He separates with his mouth, with his mere word. There's no... 
jockeying for power or control. There are no dual powers at odds. There is no fight. There is one king over all. And to us as, a, as modern people, this doesn't hold a lot of weight. But to ancient civilizations, this would have blown them away. That there's one God who rules over all and he doesn't have to fight. There's no competition. He's the king over all, the universe over all creation. And not just creation, but also chaos. He's not just a God over order. He's also a God over disorder. That's incredible. He's not only a God over life. He's also a God over death. That would have absolutely blown them away. And all throughout scripture, you will find the God of the Bible using chaotic waters to accomplish his will and enact judgment. And if you know your Bible at all, then you're already thinking of some of the stories that I'm going to reference here. Noah and the ark. God uses the chaos and disorder of water to resolve the chaos and disorder that existed in the world. And by sending the judgment waters into the earth, he preserved a people for himself and started anew. You have Moses in the Red Sea. God takes this chaos and formless void and separates it so that way his people, his people that he's preserving can pass through judgment over onto the other side. And then the Egyptians get, who are due their judgment, get into the waters. And what does he do? He releases the chaos, releases the disorder, and it comes crashing down on them. You have Jonah. And when Jonah tries to run away from God, he brings judgment unto himself. And what does God do? brings chaos into the waters. It's, it's funny in Jonah because Jonah actually acknowledges, yeah, I'm not, they're, they're like, what God do you serve? And he's like, ah, the God over all creation, including land and sea. <laughs> Yet he's on the sea trying to run from this God. It's, a, it's comical, but Jonah knows because God uses this chaos to accomplish his will. And then Jonah jumps overboard, chaos stops, and then he's swallowed by a fish who lives in the chaos, and God, but God preserves him. And he comes out again on the third day. And if that isn't enough, turn to Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. And this text will color the rest of our time together this morning. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. This is a song that was being sung amongst the people of God. Verse 23 says this, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Sound familiar? I think it does. I think it sounds a lot like Mark chapter 4. I think it sounds a lot like it. The only difference, though, is that this is some 1,000 years before Jesus would do this in the boat, in the book of Mark. 
So now that we know who we're talking about here and what they would have referenced, let's jump into Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 38. Verse 35 says this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So, boat starts to fill up with water, which a storm on the Sea of Galilee would not have been uncommon. It was about 7,000 feet below uh, sea level. So a lot of winds would come down off to the mountains into the sea. And so it just created a lot of storms all the time. So this would have been pretty common. But what do the disciples do? They do what any of us would have done. They freak out and try to wake up Jesus. They can't take what's going on. Now I've been a boat, I've been on a boat in a terrible storm before, several times. Uh, My time in the Coast Guard placed me on a 200-foot vessel uh, that was constantly in and out of different areas, uh, all kinds of depths in the Gulf of Mexico, and we have some crazy stories, and and genuinely, there is nothing more terrifying than being at the mercy of water. I remember one of the times that uh, we were going in through the Gulf of Mexico, we are going to go up the Mississippi River. And just before you get there, there's, I forget the name of it. I'll have to figure it out. I tried to, but I couldn't find it on a map, on Google map. I tried to zoom in to see if they named this pass that you had to go through, but they didn't. I guess it was just some kind of local name that we carried with it. But there was this pass that every time we would go through there, we, it was just, it was renowned for rough seas. And I remember being up on the bridge at, 12 o'clock at night, because the watch was 12 to 4, and the boat is horizontal with the water, just getting to a place where you're really uncomfortable. Now, if you thought that that would deter us, it didn't. We decided to make a game out of it, and we called it Office Chair Rodeo. So we had about four office chairs on the bridge, and what we would do is we would strap ourselves to an office chair, and whoever could last the longest won. It didn't last long, just so you know. I think uh, some of those guys on the bulls lasted longer than we did, but it was fun nonetheless, and whoever won, that was incredible. If you, if you were the first one out, that was the worst game that's ever been invented. We would, uh, we would prop up our racks that we would sleep in. We would take our boot, lift it up, lift the rack up a little bit, and put the boot there so that way when the boat swayed, you wouldn't fall out of your rack. We, uh, there would be broken dishes all the time, no matter how you secured it. And there's, dishes were gonna get broken. There was one time where we were going through this pass and it got so bad, one of the commanding officers that was sit, that was in his estate room, uh, he was sleeping and a three-hole punch shot across the room and hit him in the head and we had to f- get him flown off of the boat. <laughs> uh, he was laughing at the time. That's the only reason why I'm laughing now. He's okay. Now, mind you, my stories take place on a 200-foot boat that was made out of steel and weighed 900 tons and virtually impossible to capsize because of its ballast system. What these men would have experienced was way worse, way worse. But what I find interesting about this text is what's there and what's not there in the other two accounts of this story in the book of Luke and Matthew. So in Luke and Matthew, this interaction between the disciples and Jesus, the disciples run to Jesus and they say, Teacher, teacher, we are perishing. 
And that's it. That's not what Mark says, though. That's not Mark's account. Mark says, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, that's different. One's a statement. One's questioning motivation. So Mark's account, which is really Peter's account, starts to question who Jesus actually is to them. And it's obvious that they still haven't figured this out yet. And on the surface, it may look like they're waking him up to do something about the storm and are questioning his goodness. On the surface, at a first glance, it's like, okay, well, they're trying to get him to help. And his lack of caring must be that he just doesn't want to solve their problem. But with closer examination, that's actually not what's happening here. No, I think the disciples were actually just frustrated that their so-called teacher and leader was at best apathetic. Because the truth is, is that, and we'll see this in a minute, but if they were waking him up to stop the storm, they would not have been surprised that he did it. It, If if they wanted him to rescue the world and then he rescues the world, they'd be like, okay, good, he did his job. But that's not what we see here. I think that they were They were not asking God to awaken and rescue the world. They just needed an extra set of hands. My guess, if I had to be honest, if I'm thinking about who this disciple was, this is probably Peter. My guess, because Peter's the one whose mouth runs a million miles ahead of his critical thinking skills. So for at this moment, this had to have been him. And we know that they haven't figured out who Jesus is yet because of Jesus' response to them. Let's look at it, verse 39 to 40. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to them, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Some translations take that great calm and say it was perfectly calm. I remember growing up going uh, water skiing and wakeboarding on Lake uh, Greeson in Arkansas. And there are times when you'd wake up in the morning and it's a gigantic lake, but it was like glass. And that's, that's the picture that I get here. Perfectly calm like glass. You have this giant tempest that has come in and now it's perfectly calm. But after calming the storm, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you still, still have no faith? Up to this point, Jesus has healed diseases. He's cast out demons. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount and he's raised someone from the dead. And they still are struggling with who Jesus is. Jesus has the power over life itself, and they still don't know what Jesus came to do. Why can Jesus take a siesta in the stern of a capsizing boat? Why? Because he's the God over creation? Yes, but not only that, he's also the God over chaos. Jesus is the king over both of these things, both life and death, both chaos and order, both creation and those that deny it. He is the king over all things. Jesus has no need to be afraid. A king is not afraid of his own kingdom. A creator, not afraid of his own creation. Jesus isn't afraid of the chaotic sea because he is in control of it. When we learned in Psalm 107, what did it say? It said that God rose the wind and the waves and he also calmed it. God introduced the storm and took it away. Jesus has no need to be afraid. 
The disciples are treating Christ like he has no control over this. They are acting like he should react just as they are. That, Jesus, I don't understand why you're sleeping. Grab a bucket, dude. Get the water out of the boat. But that's not why he is sleeping. He's sleeping because there is no fear. They forgot about the God, the God of Psalm 107. They forgot that he is the God that commanded the storm to come and to stop. They forgot about it until he flexed it on them. Let's look at their response, Mark 4.41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? In other words, who then is this that even chaos listens to his voice? Who then is this that even darkness listens to his voice? And they should have been privy to this because he's already cast out demons. It should also be, who then is this that even the demonic forces of the world listen to him? I love that when Jesus asks why they are afraid and the first thing they do is get filled with fear, it's, they're doing the exact opposite of why he's asking. But why? Why has their fear risen? Because they realized in that moment that it wasn't the storm that they should be afraid of. They realized in that moment that it wasn't just the storm that was powerful. So was Jesus. So was the God-man. Not only does Jesus have the control over the very creation around them, and he has control, and he has enough control to move the disorder and move the chaos to accomplish the will. Jesus, up to this point, has shown that he has the power over diseases, death, and disorder. You see, we're, we're usually perfectly fine with God being in control when everything is seemingly going right. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing great. It's a common phrase. However, when chaos arises, we start acting like God is surprised by it. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Lay here, let me take that away. I'm sorry. Our faith is large when we tell our testimonies of God saving us from darkness, but that faith fades when chaos is introduced. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. You see, it is not enough to say we have faith. We must apply our faith. We must relate it. We must see that it is where it ought to be at any given moment. It is a poor type of Christianity that has this wonderful faith with respect to salvation and then whimpers and cries when confronted by the daily trials of life. We must apply our faith. Little faith does not do this. The problem is that we forget that God is completely other than us. He's completely other than us. We want to bring God into our own time and space And the truth is, is that he couldn't be further removed from it. It's why we start to ask questions of God, because we want to bring him and treat him like he is in our realm. We'll ask questions like, why did I lose my job? Why are my children running from you? Why is my marriage imploding? Why did I lose a loved one? Why am I watching those around me fade away We forget that he is the God of Psalm 107 that both starts the storm and calms it. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he actually does. Because even the chaos in your life is bigger than you. The trials in your life are bigger than you. They're bigger than the immediate pain that you're experiencing. Therefore, a grander purpose, not only for the world, but for you and for the glory of God. This is why when you get in John chapter 9, when you have a man that's born blind, and the disciples look at him and say, why is this man blind? Because he sinned, his parents sinned, what's going on here? 
And Jesus responds, no, it's none of those things. And so that the glory of God might be shown in him. Your trial, your circumstance, your chaos, your disorder that you experience in your life is bigger than you are. And you need to look, instead of to the, re- the resolve of that chaos, you need to look to the God who's beyond it. Look to the God who's beyond it. He is good. God is good because he is immutable. God is good because he's unchanging. He is completely faithful to his own plan. He is completely faithful to his own law, his own character, his own glory. And guess what? You're good. That is a wonderful thing to celebrate in our hearts. When Romans 8.28 says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, he means it because there is literally no other option. There is none. Because God is unchanging and immutable, God is committed to his law, committed to his way, committed to his will, and that will includes your good. So when you get chaos in your life, disorder in your life, it is for your good because it cannot be anything else. So instead of looking to why it's disorderly, why it's chaotic in your life, look to the God beyond it. Look to the God who's there with you. All right. We need to have a faith in a big God and a good king. And that faith can't start and stop at our testimony. We have to allow it to permeate the very fabric of our beings, the very fabric of our lives. Now, before I have anyone that quips that they're never going to be on a boat so they don't experience storms, I have another text for us. One that's going to bring it a little bit more into home. Because the truth is, is that chaos doesn't just look like a storm over the sea, but it takes form in many ways. Sometimes chaos is external and sometimes chaos is internal. This chaos and disorder can sometimes be a chaos of the heart. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. This is an interaction between Jesus and Mary and Martha, and she invites him into his home, and they're going to have this interaction that talks about the very thing that we're discussing this morning. And what we need to understand and things that I want you to pay attention to is that you're gonna see a similar theme and not just a similar theme, but also very, very similar language. Very similar language. Okay, Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 40. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, here's this phrase again, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help, tell her then to help me. Did you notice that? Different scene, same chaos, no water to be found, but there is a massive storm in the heart of Martha happening in that moment. The difference though, she actually did go to Jesus for his authority. It's the difference between the disciples and Jesus. She at least recognizes that he has it. So she did go to Jesus for his authority. However, there is an issue because instead of having the right reverence for the God of the universe sitting in her home, she attempts to leverage it for her own authority. She leverages it for her own gain. And in that moment, she is trying to assume authority over Jesus. She is trying to make Jesus submit to her will. She wants Jesus to obey her voice. 
And this is the bend of all of our hearts to take advantage of things around us for our own good. We have to notice this. We do this all the time and we just may not even realize it. We may find somebody that has some kind of connection for us that works out to our advantage and we immediately try to leverage it. If you have someone that is a friend that works in a store, hey man, can you give me a deal? Or if you have someone that works for an artist, hey man, do you think you get me concert tickets? Or better yet, for the cops in the room, didn't you get me out of that ticket? Too many people said yes to that. But this is what Martha is attempting to do. Listen, I get it. I also love a clean house. My wife is what we call a serial cleaner. She will literally sweep around you as you're moving. The human Roomba. And I love it. I love it because she genuinely keeps our house in order. And it, uh, an orderly house is a peaceful house. And it brings great joy to my soul when that's the case. But Martha misses the point here. Instead of embracing the presence of a loving God in the midst of her chaos and disorder, she wants Jesus to fix her problem. She wants Jesus to serve her idol, which is herself. However, fixing problems, if that becomes the extent in which you engage and interact with God, fixing problems reduces God to a thimble. It doesn't actually bring peace and joy like you think it does. If God is merely the solver of your issues, you have too small of a God. Because the truth is, is that when we reduce God to merely the solver of our issues and we don't look beyond the problems, all we do is bide us time until the next issue arises. That's it. When I was in high school, I could only afford to fill up my tank a quarter at a time. Quarter tank at a time. That's it. I would get to a quarter tank, drive it down to zero, quarter tank, right down to zero. I would live my life, the old phrase from uh, Fast and the Furious, I live my life a quarter mile at a time. I live my life a quarter tank at a time. When we only look to Jesus to solve our problems, that's exactly what we do. We live life a quarter tank at a time. Fill up just enough to get back to zero. You live proverbially paycheck to paycheck when it comes to the state of your soul. You never actually get to the peace and joy that that resolution promises. The true answer, the true solution is in Jesus's answer to Martha. Verse number 41 says this, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I, I really love the last statement, which will not be taken away from her. Because how many times do we get in this situation in our lives where something good happens, but we're waiting for the other shoe to drop? We're waiting for something to go bad. Surely in a world full of sin, this can't be good. It can't be all good. There has to be something, there has to be a catch. When it comes to the good portion, sitting at the feet of Jesus, there's no catch. There's no other shoe, it's fully resolved. True peace, true joy. And this space is where true joy and peace is found at the feet of the king. 
Abiding in Christ in the midst of a storm and chaos is the actual solution, the abiding in Christ. It may not relieve the pain, but it will bring joy. My, my advice to you is don't fall prey to the lesser gods that overpromise and underdeliver. A new job, a spouse, a better spouse, a child, the f- fresh start. And, and let me just say this because I know this is popular in our culture. A fresh start could not be more demonic. It's genuinely saying, I'm not going to endure. I'm not going to run. What's better for me is for me to get rid of God, what God has placed in my life and start anew, start afresh. In that moment, you are choosing to play God. You are choosing to say, I'm on the throne. What you've given me, not good. I need a new one. There's no endurance in that. There's no growth. There's no growth in wisdom, growth in character. There's nothing there. Throughout the Bible, you have words like endurance, roots, growing. You, you have all of this language of death to self and alive in Christ. And when you say, God, everything producing those good character traits, that death in me, everything doing that, I'm just going to get rid of and start afresh so I don't have to feel it. Trust me, suffering will follow you. Because the problem is not the issue that you're trying to resolve. The problem is not the chaos. The problem is the worship of the resolution. The real solution to our soul that we feel when chaos comes around and disorder comes around is Jesus. That's the real solution. And listen, I'm not saying that better job, more money and better health don't don't solve the problem. Those things can help. They really can. I don't want to take away from that. But we need to understand that the chaos that we have is bigger than us. We're part of a bigger picture, a bigger story. It's meant to do more than just make you feel a little pain. It's meant to point you to a God that loves you. It's meant to point you to the king. You see, Jesus is actually working out a bigger plan in the chaos. He actually rescues us from the greatest of all chaos. In fact, he rescued us from the cause of all the chaos, sin. See, Adam and Eve sent the world into chaos and Jesus, the second Adam, comes into the world and brings order. In Psalm 107, God is in the heavens and he's ruling over creation and chaos. But in Mark 4, what does he do? He places himself in the middle of it. He places himself in the boat. He places himself in the middle of the chaos to show that he is in control. And this is a picture of what he will do on the cross. In the same way that he willingly brought order to the chaos of the sea, he will bring and has brought order to the chaos of sin by dying on the cross for us. What's more, as we learned in Luke chapter 10, he didn't just die on the cross for us, but he gave us a place at his feet. He gave us a place of peace a place that we can actually go, where we can actually experience peace and joy that's promised to us on this side of heaven. I want to end on this, reading a quote that I feel captures the heart of all that we've talked about this morning. It's from Augustine uh, about the very purpose of the storm. Just hear these words, they're beautiful. It says this, when you have to listen to abuse, that means you are being buffeted by the wind. 
When your anger is roused, you are being tossed by the waves. So when the winds blow, when the waves mount high, the boat is in danger. Your heart is imperiled. Your heart is taking a battering. On hearing yourself insulted, you long to retaliate, but the joy of revenge brings with it another kind of misfortune, shipwreck. Why is this? Because Christ is asleep in you. What do I mean? I mean you have forgotten his presence. Rouse him then, remember him, let him keep watch within you, pay heed to him. A temptation arises, it is the wind, it disturbs you, it is the surging of the sea. This is the moment to awaken Christ and let him remind you of those words. Who can this be? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Friends, let's not waste our chaos. Let's not waste the disorder that we experience, the hurt and the trials that we experience. These are the moments that we get to awaken Christ in us and find that true joy and peace. And friends, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, turn to him, turn to him this morning. Nothing you are going to do is going to stop the chaos. By not turning to Jesus, you are only ensuring the pain of the disorder, the pain of the storm. You get all the hell with no the hope. Friends, turn to Jesus because with Christ, you have a better hope ahead of you. You have a God that is waiting beyond the pain, beyond the trial, beyond the suffering because he's a God who isn't just authoritative over creation. He's also the God authoritative over chaos. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we close this time together with you in the same way that we began. And God, if there are any storms or chaos in our heart, God, we pray that we would, you would help us to see beyond it. Help us to see that you have never left. Help us to see that you are in control. Help us to see that there's never been a moment where you've been surprised or taken aback. God, you've always had your hands on the wheel. And so God, help us to rest in the truth. You're not just a powerful king, but you're a good one. You're a good king that loves his people, a good king that leads his kingdom well, a good king that advances his kingdom, both in our hearts and into the world. And so God, as we go about our weeks and we experience disorder and chaos, because we will, help us, God, to not merely try to resolve it or remove it. God, help us to look to the God that is beyond it. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.